My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Spencer Moore, a very experienced game master with a lot of games under his belt. He is also a game designer, and we will talk about his game Chasing Adventure, a Powered by the Apocalypse game somewhat inspired by Dungeon World. In the first half of the episode, we talk about the different games that he's ran and played. We talk about some of the favorite takeaways he has from those, such as the character-driven nature of Burning Wheel. We also go in-depth on his Session Zero procedure. Then in the second half of the episode, we switch gears a little bit and talk about his game, Chasing Adventure. It's a fast-paced, powered-by-the-apocalypse, Dungeon World-esque game. There is a free version of the rules, and there's also a paid full version of the game as well. Both of those links are in the show notes. I always love talking game design, and I actually think there's a lot of good mechanical bits that could be stolen for your home game, especially the death mechanic that we talk about towards the second half of the episode. If you've been enjoying these episodes so far, don't forget to like, subscribe, favorite, share, whatever. The episodes, it really helps me out and helps more people find the channel. And go ahead and leave a comment or drop something to me on Twitter or in the Discord channel about what your favorite part of this episode was or maybe your favorite mechanic that you took away from this episode. And if you're looking to get in on an interview and be on the show, don't forget there is a link in the show notes and you can also drop by the Discord server where you'll see when I am posting new interview slots. So go ahead and check that out. And with that, let's get into the episode. Welcome. Today I have Spencer Moore with me, the creator of Chasing Adventure. Welcome, Spencer. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Yes, very excited. Spencer, why don't you go ahead and tell us about how you got started in the tabletop role-playing game space? Sure. Well, as many things do, it all started with, of course, World of Warcraft. Um, Specifically, I was following and um, paying attention to a notable YouTuber, uh, Total Biscuit, who had joined and started playing role-play Dark Heresy, a Warhammer 40,000 role-playing game. That was my first experience watching that, was my first experience uh, actually seeing what a tabletop RPG actually looked like outside of TV shows that either make fun of tabletop role-playing games or make fun of their own characters via tabletop role-playing games. Um, So it was very interesting, and it was within a couple months at most, probably closer to weeks, that I had joined a group on Roll20, and we had started playing through Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition's Lost Minds of Fandelver adventure. That was back in 2012. And what do you end up playing mostly now? Oh, all sorts of games right now. Um, so I have two groups nowadays. One on Fridays, where I play... Right now, I'm GMing Curse of Strahd, uh, my group on that day has a variety of tastes, and D&D 5th Edition is the uh, middle of the ground for all of us, some of which are more narrativist, some of which uh, prefer games closer to Pathfinder and things like that. So we've all settled like, yeah, okay, we could play 5th Edition, we can all settle for it. So um, we did a full-on custom homebrew um, setting campaign for two years with breaks and other games in between, and now we are doing Curse of Strahd. However, also, my Sunday group for years has been a variety gaming group where we specifically will play a mini-campaign um, of a game and then effectively review it, um, recording the streaming the sessions, recording the reviews, um, but we've done over a dozen games right now. I actually counted them all. I think it's around a dozen. So I've been, I'm playing... Sorry? Go ahead. Um, so I've played Burning Wheel twice, uh, Torchbearer, Apocalypse World, uh, Nobilis, Sarsote Number, both basic and revised, Blades in the Dark, and then those were just the longer campaign ones. There's also been ones we've done Masks, The Quiet Year, Tunnel Goons, 
just way more as well. There, it, we, it's been going on for years, and I'm very fortunate enough to have been able to play all sorts of games, and even that still feels like I am just barely... I have so many more games that I want to play. They're releasing games faster than you can than typically can find a group play. to play. <laughs> yeah, because games take forever to play relative to um, how fast they come out, even more so than most other media. Um, how long or how many sessions do you typically have for a mini campaign? Um, we usually aim for eight to 12. We've had some games where we've ended it early. Um, I think we did four to six episodes with City of Mist. It was very well made, but we just, the group was like not, it wasn't as character focused as we were as we went in looking for it to be a lot of the game is built on this is a it's sort of a urban supernatural detective kind of game think um why am i blanking on it the source of the d there's a book series or actually several book series um but it's very detective focused it's very focused on this is the case this is what you're going to discover and it's all about that but then all of us went in with like weird characters that we wanted to have interactions with, and the game didn't seem to have that much space for it. Um, Interesting. I've I've watched a handful of things from City of Mist because there's some mechanical things that I think it does interestingly, but I I have never actually gotten to play a session of it. It, it is very interesting mechanically. Um, Dresden Files is the book series I, I was missing. Um, yeah, it very much reminds me of that, but. It is powered by the apocalypse, but way more open-ended than most other games because you almost build... You don't roll a single stat. You have, like, tags. It's much more complex. Um, as I said, very interesting, but not what we enjoyed subjectively. Um, I also have done some longer uh, campaigns. I think the longest one we ended up doing was a 21 or 22-session Blades in the Dark campaign where we went full... Zero starting out to killing the governor of the city. So that sounds like a fun campaign. <laughs> it, it was. Um, it was a lot of fun. So, so uh, of the systems that you have played, do you have one that you maybe would not necessarily a favorite, but one that you really enjoy to play? I have multiple, but honestly, my top one right now is barely because there are some contenders blades in the dark i said blades in the dark i'm sorry i take that back that second place what i meant to say was burning wheel um burning wheel still has taught me a lot about intentionality and character design in role-playing games when it comes to how it treats beliefs and instincts when it comes to using the director stance for um having your character intentionally do suboptimal things is how it would be portrayed in other games um but in a game like burning wheel is optimal because it's not about survival it's about drama basically there are other games like burning wheel now um, that's just the biggest name of its type um, right now, we just finished off a four-session campaign of Hot Circle in a very strange um, setting that we created using the Quiet Year RPG. We'll be continuing on soon with that using a different Burning Wheel hack called the Gold Hack soon. So those are other games um, for those who are interested in Burning Wheel but don't want to buy it. I have heard a little bit about burning wheel and i the one thing that always comes up is people seem to say that it's got just like a really high barrier to entry at, at least in terms of understanding the game yeah it honestly um the way i would put it is it almost gets in its own way for you learning it because the way burning wheel works is the first 80 pages are actually i think publicly available for free that's the core game. Um, then the other 80% of the book is a bunch of what I would see as the equivalent in Dungeons & Dragons as extra source books that you can add on but don't need. Um, 
but it's all together in one book and it doesn't present it that way, which means a lot of people think because those aren't just source books for extra options. Those are source books for here's a new way to do fights and everyone you would think you need to know every single system of how to play the game before you play it at all. But the truth is in something like Burning Wheel, that extra fight system, we only brought it out once or twice in our entire campaign. In in uh, I think it was just once we brought out that system for one specific sort of clim climactic duel. We brought out the more complicated fight system because we wanted to know what every single sword swing was like. Um, outside of that, though, you don't need to go in knowing anything except the first 80 pages, basically. That makes sense. It's almost like having a bunch of optional rules and then the DM yeah. just kind of getting lost and like, well, do I do I need this all the time Yeah, or not? And the game does say that they're optional, you don't need to know them, but it doesn't make that clear. The text that actually says that is just regular paragraph text, I think, somewhere in the book. Um, it's It doesn't actually split that section of the book to make it clear enough from the layout that is different. So it's a very good game that almost is made better if you remove everything past those 80 pages. That's why something like Hot Circle um, exists. It is a mixture of Fate and Burning Wheel, um, and it effectively removes everything. I think the entire game is like 20 pages, and that's just whatever you need. And it takes those that first section of Burning Wheel, simplifies it in some ways, um and but keeps the focus on character sure and is that uh i guess what is the what would be like the main thing that you enjoy about burning wheel is it the character focus yes very much so burning wheel i would describe as a medieval soap opera um you it encourage the way that its xp system work works called artha is you are rewarded and encouraged to try things that you know will fail and to make decisions that you have your character make decisions that you as a player know are bad um you you as a player are encouraged to make your own character suffer because of their own faults um and then even better blame it on someone around them because that's even more dramatic um you're encouraged to do that the game rewards that um your character advances in different ways by trying to act that way. Um, and that is my favorite part of it. It's just the, I am not a so fan of soap operas because I'm not invested in them and because the characters don't really act in a way that I find engaging. Um, I say that having not really given them a shot. So, you know, take that with a pinch of salt, but, in Burning Wheel, because I'm controlling one of the characters and because because the character's beliefs are written down, I believe this general philosophy thing, and it makes me want to take this action, I know why every character is doing what they're doing for every other player character. And you don't have the traditional party dynamic. Um, sometimes you're allies, and sometimes you're, you're sort of like a D&D &D party. More often than not, you're sort of in between allies and competitors. Um, the most recent campaign I played, I say devolved, we double check with everyone and we were perfectly fine with all of it. It ended up being all four of us players doing a power grab against each other alongside some NPCs, um, for effectively military control over a small, uh, town that we were occupying. That, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. The way that you're describing it, I can kind of see the connections to soap operas because like sometimes uh sometimes characters are friends and then like a little bit later they want to stab each other in the back and then mm -hmm. you know and then later they're friends again or whatever and and kind of see some of that that shifting alliances almost yes exactly and that's exactly what happened um and then to add in the fantasy medieval stuff you had one character for example uh they were an alcoholic due to previous trauma and uh, a necromancer character got them addicted to their poisonous necro alcohol and then out of through that manipulated them into doing what they wanted it was very strange but well done um and the climactic duel i mentioned at the end was between that person 
um, the person who was manipulated and like a warrior mage, sort of a spell sword uh, style character. Um, it was, yeah, mixing in fantastical elements, but still keeping the the focus on character is rare. And um, okay, so having played multiple systems uh, like you have, how has that impacted the way in which you run games? I think it has expanded the number of tools I have at my disposal and the number of mindsets that I can shift into. Because every game requires something different from the GM, even if just a bit slightly. Um, a different set of tools or a different... Uh, even if one game... Even if two games require the same type of style, um, out of the four different sub-skills within that, one might focus more on what on a two of them and one might focus more on the other two of them. Um, even if all four of them, all of them use technically all four of those subskills, like map making or character portrayals or things like that. Um, so it's helped me expand and hone, I think, my breadth of skills when it comes to GMing. Um, do you have certain tools that you tend to use for many of the games that you run? Um, in terms of specific software or write no or note taking, I usually rely either on a Google Doc whereby I write down things that might be going on, or I rely on the systems. Uh, like if we often play online, Roll Twenty is what we almost always use, and I'll just use the handouts in there for where I do my prep. But as to how. Most of the systems we play get, will provide you with here is the uh, here's how to organize your prep. Here's how the lens through which to make it. Um, if one does not provide that, then my main method is something along the lines of what will happen uh, if the players don't do anything. I am effectively building a china shop for my player's bull. Um, this starts with, again, the characters. I figure out uh, NPCs. I try to get in their heads and try to write down their motivations. Why do they act the way they do? Um, because if I can understand that, it helps me better improvise what will uh, what they will do and how they will react when things inevitably change. This is what they want. This is how they're going to get it. The player stops them from taking that avenue of getting it. This is how else they might try to get it or how they might respond. And do you find yourself creating um, a lot of different NPCs kind of before the players interact with them? Or do you, do you tend to have them come up on the fly? Um, it's a mixture for me. I will rarely not do a session zero. I usually do a session zero where we'll talk about um, characters and the world, and oftentimes what will come up will be at least a handful of NPCs um, that will be important, and that's especially because the players suggest or come up or have input into them during that session zero, um, they're more likely to be more invested in them as characters because they helped create them. Um, so I will focus on them. Then... Sometimes during prep, I will prepare NPCs that make sense thematically or as foils or um, complements to other player characters. Um, and then, yeah, if the, if the players go off and say, like, I look for a dirt merchant who's selling quality dirt, I have to come up with a dirt merchant. And then if I feel that they can stay important and interesting and mattering, then I will flesh them out in prep in between. Um. And so it's interesting that you talked about a little bit of world building uh, and your players have input on NPCs. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your session zero process? Absolutely. Um, so the most in-depth process that I did was for my homemade setting Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition campaign. Uh, it was a homemade setting and it started with our session zero. 
Um, I didn't go in with any specific ideas. Me and my players came up with the entire th general setting from scratch. Things like there's a elf wizard empire thing, and Elvish is Latin in this setting because then we can just name things in Latin, and that's totally what Elvish is. Um, and there was just a lot of back and forth between me and the other players. It got them very invested in it. Um, and it was the entire four hours, there wasn't any actual game time. It was just us throwing ideas at each other and discussing, yep, yeah, let's do this and let's do this. And we didn't go so in depth, um, but we decided like, yeah, one character, they wanted to be sort of a, a necromancer, but not obviously so. So there's this like this region that looks like it would fit right into Curse of Strahd. Um, it's just like very swampy and full of horrible monsters, and he's from a basically a haunted mansion. And he joined the party because he got captured. This was all just stuff that we came up with together. Um, it got everyone very invested. It I had a list of questions that I asked them because we were starting from scratch. Um, how high magic do you want it to be? How much technology do you want it to be? Um, how much, um, like how wide do we want the world to be? Even though there's more world, we really only were effectively in one country for the entire campaign. Even though we talked about there was more out there, it was just unloaded space, basically. It was, it was not generated or, or built on. Um, so asking those questions was very helpful. And do you use any, I know there are like the quiet year or, you know, there's various other kind of world gen processes. In this case, was it just a, just a conversation at the table? In this case, yes. Um, it started with a Google form for everyone. I just, uh, as I said, the very early initial questions of how much technology size, um, how much magic, things like that. Um, that I started with to get a baseline of what is someone definitely not good with and what is something that would be a good middle ground. But that was still very, looking back, um, it was helpful for my first time. It wasn't that necessary for the Session Zero itself. It really was mostly a conversation. Um, and then making sure to both suggest ideas, but also ask questions that you think are interesting and making sure to make it clear with your players they for that session zero there is no player to gm discrepancy or dynamic it is just at that point it's just people talking um, i've used yeah. the quiet year it is excellent i've used it for my current uh, sunday group campaign um but it is also limited to specifically a village, for example. Sure. So it kind of depends on the scope that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I, I like how you said that the, there's no discrepancy between your players or the players and the GM in that conversation that you had, um, because then everybody's on the same uh, level or the same footing, I guess, in yeah. terms of having agency over creating the world and the the people yeah and it worked really well um at one point i was sick or otherwise unavailable for one session so the rest of my players gathered uh, had a group to get together anyways and did more world building for the other areas they hadn't seen yet and then handed it to me and said this is what we came up with use it as much as you want and i of course use all of it well, that's really cool and, and then you've got more material and they're still just even more invested in the world now. <laughs> yep. Exactly. So it was uh, a big success for something like that. Um, but yeah, I have heard about another one. I'm forgetting what it, there's another system that people I know have used for setting creation. That was very much your um, spending points to, make certain statements or create certain factions or things like that. Um, and Dawn of Worlds? That is it, yes, Dawn of Worlds. I have not played it myself, so I can only speak from secondhand. But to me, it was almost too systemized. Um, now that I think about it, in fact, with my experience in the more systemized world-building systems, um, 
I also have played Microscope. It's also very good. In all of the games that I have both encountered and played that use those systems, the world ends up being very strange. Um, when I played Microscope, we ended up with a setting where dinosaurs, psychic dinosaurs, built a ring world around the sun. Um, so that was a thing. And in The Quiet Year, for example, though I actually really like the setting, it's also very strange. It's this post-apocalyptic cyberpunk post-cyberpunk medieval feudal village that exists in an old neighborhood that used to be part of a large city um and all of the animals are half cybernetic but we don't have anything that resembles modern technology we only have either completely uh technology from the dark ages or super advanced sci-fi technology that fits into cyberpunk and nothing in between so we don't have for example a computer we have a robot that does computing tasks it's uh reminds me of um there's a video game where you hunt like mechanical dinosaurs why can't you think of the name of that um uh it starts with an a i have a friend that played a lot of it i think it starts with an a i have not played it myself a lot i tried it um but i know what you're referring to Oh, wait, no. Horizon Zero Dawn. I was thinking of a different game. Yes, there you go. <clears throat> yep, no, that's an excellent game. Um, but yeah, in all of the systemized um, world-building games I've played, I don't know if it's something to do with the system or not, but someone will suggest, and it'll, and everyone will go with it, something that kind of makes it very strange. Um, when it comes to just having a regular conversation, as a session zero without a, a systemic approach to it, I found the worlds to be a lot more, um, I'd say less out there. And that can be good or bad. Uh, for what I was going for with Dungeons and Dragons, it was definitely good. Right. Just kind of keeps things a little bit more grounded in the, maybe the tropes and yeah. kind of just expectations of the system. I don't want to have to make stats for laser swords. <laughs> it's just a tag you can add onto it, right? Like, does radiant in, damage or something <laughs> in uh actually that's not a bad idea but then you'd have to figure out a way for it to bounce off armor and that's why even star wars had that material that you could weave into your armor to make it lightsaber resistant because it needed something to challenge lightsabers and it's a whole thing yeah beskar or mandalorian steel depending on beskar is one and there was another one um that is less rare but also less resistant that I don't think was mentioned in the Mandalorian, but it's a, that's absolutely also the case. As I say, it depends on what Legends book you've read, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Either way, laser swords, like things that can cut through anything, are hard to deal with and hard to challenge. Yeah, because then, or well, and D and D doesn't have any sort of like piercing mechanic. Um, mm. Like a lot of the Star Wars it. games have like a like an armor threshold, and then if you have a lightsaber, it just it just it has like a yep. pierce value, so you get through a lot of that armor. Yep, and the latest uh, fi final, the Fantasy Flight game, Star Wars games, just have uh, lightsabers ignore 10 armor, which is a lot. Um, so that works yeah, too. Yeah, because like regular armor is only like a couple points. Yeah, 10 armor is more than a person usually has, and some vehicles are only 10 armor for war vehicles. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, an interesting challenge. And why don't we, this is probably a good spot to talk about your Chasing Adventures game. That's true. It would be less of a challenge in that game to manage because it handles items. So um, maybe just give us a, like a general overview of the game that you're working on. Sure. Chasing Adventure is a fast-paced fantasy action adventure uh, role-playing game. Um, it is meant to emulate what people imagine when they think of D&D or when someone retells the story of what happened during a D&D game um, and what goes through your head and imagination. It is meant to play like those. So much faster paced, um, pretty slick and easy to play. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you kind of modeled it a little bit after Dungeon World. That's correct. It started as a 
uh, modification and hack of Dungeon World. And over time, uh, more and more changes were made to the point where it mostly is its own thing. Um, it still lives in the same space as Dungeon World fictionally, and it still intends to feel like Dungeons and Dragons, um, whereas many other, even fantasy games that are, are powered by the apocalypse like it, um, are, they have a different feeling to them. Um, they have, Stone Top is a lot more sort of hearth fantasy, where you are, I believe, building up and protecting a single village, um, and you're more regular, closer to regular people. Um, and Fellowship is the other big one, which is more of a heroic adventure um, than uh, more of a generic adventure. In in Fellowship, while you're still an adventuring party and stuff like that, it it plays a lot more like Lord of the Rings in terms of their it, emphatically built into the game is an evil overlord that all of you have come together to try to stop. That is part of Fellowship. Um, so you have your Sauron from the beginning. And yeah, in Chasing Adventure, it's a lot more flexible. Um, you are intended to generally be allies, but in the full version of the game, um, there is a section on how to handle PvP if you have it. Um, there you can fight each other, and while it's still not meant to be the default way of, of interacting with your other fellow player characters, it is something that the game can handle, I think, better than most Powered by the Apocalypse games. Except Apocalypse World, but that's uh, very... That, that's built into the game partly. You're more competitors like Burning Wheel. Um, I would like to talk about the PvP stuff a little bit more because I haven't seen uh, Powered by the Apocalypse, or it doesn't doesn't necessarily feel like there's a good way to handle it. Um, so for chasing adventure, is your dice mechanic uh, similar to the like two d six plus a modifier, or what is that? Yeah, mechanic. So it works the same way. Um, the way that this game recommends handling PvP, it's not uh, a specific rule set for it. That's why it's in the advanced play section. Um, but it is... Here is what to do before PvP happens. Um, as players, make sure everyone is good with it. Um, and then if you do have it, um, if you do PvP, alternate who is rolling is the biggest thing. Um, and alternate the perspective from which everything is happening. So you can do things like if two people are, in, are let's say I've had this happen in, in a session of Chasing Adventure where um, one person, our immolator, had had enough of our thief and was chasing them down. Um, they weren't to the po hostile to the point of throwing fireballs at them, but they were trying to capture them. Um, so they, what we had was okay you're the one who's starting this instance of pvp you're the one who is initializing this so you emulator as someone who's trying to grab the thief roll to do that um and then i believe they got a seven to nine we talked about it and they um then we switched to the thief and the thief uh, as a result of the middling move the thief got an opportunity to um basically get them to break off break away from them we switched to the thief and then had them make a describe what they do make a roll to get away um and they were able to break free slip free after they were captured and start running away and then we continued on with a chase scene actually alternating between people as the thief um jumped on a nearby carriage that was riding by and ended up escaping because the emulator could not run fast enough to catch up Sure. So it's that it's that alternation. That, that's one of the tricky things with Powered by the Apocalypse, since typically the um, only the players are rolling, but then now you're rolling against another you know, player. The yeah. rules to to handle against another player. Yeah. Yep. So that's the big trick to it. That's what I found makes it work the best is um, alternate who is rolling and switch frequently and check if the consequences for each role make sense. Um, one of the other sections here is um, 
sometimes, if they're good with it, um, if one player rolls a six or lower against the other player, just say, all right, other player who they were acting against you and they failed, um, within limits, of course, what happens? And uh, you can just let them get give them control like you would get control if they were rolling against an NPC or things like that. Sure, they almost... Uh... Because in a in a normal situation, it would be player versus a GM controlled entity, right? So then yeah. the GM would step in to say, "Here's what happens." But now exactly. here, you're saying, "Well, player, you're the entity that's this is being targeted against." So, yeah, you exactly. can make the decision now. And to a degree, that's how it works in many other games as well. If you think about turn-based in the same, a, a turn-based system is the same way of that alternation of in Dungeons Dragons. Okay, it's your turn, so you are the one we are focusing on. You are the one who takes actions, and the other player doesn't do anything with uh, barring things like reactions or other uh, unusual circumstances. Um, they are passive, and then once the turn switches, uh, that changes. So I don't feel that it is as different as it first appears once you compare it to typical turn-based games. Yeah, it just seems a little funny right out of the gate because the me- the, the mechanics aren't necessarily set up in a way that mm-hmm. makes sense. But yeah, when you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, it's it's really not that different. Yeah, and I think... Um, like you do with alternating spotlights in any Powered by the Apocalypse game, you should switch perspectives when it makes sense to. So if someone just has to uh, defy um, a threat in order to then do the thing they actually want to do, then I would have both roles. But as soon as they have attempted their main intent, then I would switch to the other perspective. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. And the uh, book includes a like two page long example of what PvP can look like, including all of this. Examples so are good. Help. For something yeah. like this, absolutely is necessary. So no, it's a uh, I think it handles it or I don't think it handles it differently than most of these games can handle it, but what it does do is tell you how you can handle it in this and any other game similar. Right, and I think that's a an awesome addition there because, like you said, it's as far as powered by the apocalypse games go, you really could use that same method. A lot of times, it's just having a game master understand that they can, and what is my process for handling that situation? Exactly, because a lot of games don't really lay that out, or they just say basically, you know don't fight each other or, you know, yeah. do things against each other because we don't really have a great way to tell you how to deal with it. Yep. So there is a, uh, that should help a lot with being comfortable with it. Um, my longest playtest campaign, which was several sessions ended up with a similar situation that that was the chase scene I described was part of that. Um, and yeah, there were a lot of, there were a few different situations that happened like that. There was just a lot of sort of tension between the three player characters with uh, differing loyalties and who they were allied to and political intrigue was a part of it as well. Um, it was actually that where I came up with one of my other, other favorite parts of the game, which is the ability to push yourself Um that's a move that I've added to the game that allows you to take a condition in order to get a bonus to a role you're making. Um, that was added because I made my city too interesting for the campaign, so my players didn't want to leave it. They always wanted to do stuff in it. But in the city itself, there wasn't a lot of what at the time was like standard Dungeons and Dragons fighting, like fightiness. So while they were having a lot of fun, they weren't ever in a lot of danger, um, which means they never needed to rest, which means they also didn't need to um, worry about the advancing 
threats because in chasing adventure uh it's all about trying to push yourself to do as much as you can before you rest because when you rest that's when uh what's called the ominous forces advance got it so that kind of reminds me of um lord of the rings game shadow of mordor or shadow yes. of war yep. like when you die is it that is that in between time it, between you um you dying and you respawning essentially that the world advances uh, while you're gone yep so i was having that speed bump where um there was stuff happening in the city but it was a place it was a city it was a place of civilization and i wasn't gonna have guards that just start swinging a sword at you the first time you steal an apple this is not a, a video game law enforcement these are these are people um so i needed a way for players to still feel like they were running themselves ragged or having issues just from doing normal things and that's when i invented the ability for them to push themselves so they can firstly they can still take conditions from doing that um and the second thing is i made it more explicitly clear in the game writing that conditions don't just happen from physical harm um if you find yourself being subject to a public public humiliation that could be a condition to your charisma or wisdom for example um you uh the player gets to decide exactly how they take the condition but that's uh conditions just like a negative modifier to a stat yep so if you have conditions um act very similarly to masks uh, if you have one you have disadvantage on a roll disadvantage in this case normally you roll two dice um if you have advantage you roll three and take the highest two and if you have disadvantage you roll three and take the lowest two um and you can have multiple sources of advantage and disadvantage so at one point i had someone rolling i think five dice and took take, took the highest two but that was very unusual um so if you have a condition you have disadvantage to the roll using it but as I've said, the game is about pushing yourself. So that is also how you get a big share of experience. You get one experience whenever you roll using a stat that has a condition on it. So that's a big benefit. And leaning into that um, burning wheel trope of do something that you know probably isn't going to turn out so well for you. Yep. Or you can offset the disadvantage you have through other methods, say, push yourself again, take another condition to another stat, but you negate the condition to this stat, or get someone to help you. Um, but that'll also mean that if it doesn't go well, the consequences are multiplied to include. So, What other... No, oh, go ahead. Um, there's a lot of the... I would say flow of how the conditions interact with the players um, that I've put a lot of thought into to try and have the characters be worn down and want to rest, but try to keep going long, as long as they can. Is there any other systems in the game that you really enjoy or really feel good at the table? Um, I like what happens when you mark all of your conditions, the replacement for death. Um, it's called crumble is what it is. And it is inspired by Apocalypse World. Um, in Apocalypse World, I think to quote the, either the game itself or someone talking about the game, you drive your characters like you, they're stolen cars, where you're just your characters are extremely reckless and do ridiculous things and act like over-the-top apocalypse movie characters. The one of the big reasons for this is because in Apocalypse World, when you run out of their equivalent of hit points, you don't necessarily die. You choose whether or not you die, or a few other things. Um, and that means you don't have to be afraid of running out of hit points, or just getting into a gunfight. You're not going to be at risk of losing your character, though you still can choose that this is the end of your character if you feel it's the right time and you want to. I've done something similar with Chasing Adventure. This is why you conditions are interesting rather than scary, and you're not at risk of losing your character. Whenever uh, you have full conditions, you either die, you choose, not the GM, 
or change to a new playbook, meaning you fundamentally change in some way, or, and this is intended to be the most common one, um, you lock in one of the conditions you have, and it cannot be removed except by buying it off with a level instead of doing one of other things with a level. So it's sort of paying an XP. Interesting. Um, I do kind of like the idea of, uh, I like a lot of the ideas that you have there. The uh, choice as to whether or not you're, you die uh, is good because I think in like D&D or, or a lot of other games, you players tend to try to play it pretty safe, right? Because if especially if they put a lot of time into into the character and they really like the character and they don't want to play something else mm-hmm. then you know you're ad, you know risk adverse to uh, having something happen to them right so exactly here, it's a loss of control and right with crumble you have full control over what happens to your character especially in a way when they would or when they're close to death and the other one I think that's interesting is the uh, take a new playbook. So how does how does that work? Do they just completely switch their entire playbook, or do they just switch almost like a multi class? Or how does that pan out? Yeah. Um, they switch their class. In fact, I will add a uh, some more details on this to make it more clear. They switch their class. Um, they take a new playbook. They discard their old one. They're no longer the same person. They've been changed some way, um, willingly or not, in character. Um, and most of the their moves and abilities associated with their old playbook are gone. Um, discuss it with the GM if there's some that you still feel make sense to keep and would be iconic to your character. Um, there are also certain abilities you might have called assets that are outside of your playbook. Um, those can also be kept if it makes sense. And most of them would. Most of them are very separate from the playbook. Um, and then you almost make a new character with in the new playbook. Um, yeah, you can start at level one. There's not much of a power discrepancy there, uh, even at level one again. Um, you would still be pretty good and your level is treated differently in chasing adventure, even than in dungeon world. Um, there are more levels and they are smaller and levels are a lot more fast and loose, um, in chasing adventure relative to most other games, honestly. So basically what i'm hearing is you would then also level up faster right You're, there's more chances for you to hit those advancements yep exactly so you you level up with only five experience um in dungeon world the minimum was eight but every level you had would increase that uh so it was seven plus your level you start at level one there's eight but once you get from level nine to ten then it was 16 experience um but in chasing adventure it's just always five and when you level up, you either increase a stat, or get a move, or get an asset, or remove a locked condition, or you can also choose to do this with choose to do this with experience. Change playbooks if you want to do it that way. Sure. So, yeah. That um, one thing that I at least find one because I tend to not always have consistent games. Um, is that especially in like a D&D, it's like forever until you level up and then you like get that little burst of excitement when you level up and you're picking new stuff and then and then you kind of settle into that for a while, you know, and yeah. I, I like some of the other games where you get to like either every session or every other session you're getting something, even if it's not like, I mean, when you level up in d and I mean, you usually get access to, you know, some pretty good powers or new spells oh, yeah. or whatever, you know, there's a lot of meat tucked into that it but can I, take uh, minutes to level up in that game right and and sometimes it's nice to be like okay we played and next time i get to have you know this new skill unlocked or this mm-hmm. extra thing or you know whatever whereas with like D and some of those longer games you, you have to wait longer but you get a bigger payoff but i would rather like split that out and yeah the payoff is more... intended to be about the same but just spread out more and in smaller amounts at once. Um, yeah. 
The uh, what's interesting also about chasing adventure is you only level up when you rest to again go back to that cycle of resting and trying to run yourself ragged. Is you don't level up until you rest, so that's another incentive. That's the carrot to the stick of running out of conditions. Sure, and and now that you've described how quickly you level up, that locking a condition makes a lot yeah. more sense because it's, it's not, not a huge deal. Yeah, it is. It'll be a time investment, but mm-hmm. not not like something like D anD D where you could be waiting like sessions, multiple sessions before you would. Correct. You In would a way, a it's chance. kind of like reducing your maximum health a, a short, a small amount by twenty percent. Um, because by reducing, by taking a permanent condition or semi-permanent, you then don't have it available to take whenever you rest, and so you effectively have fewer conditions to take until you crumble again. Um, but you still get experience for it, even if it's locked in, even if it's that version of having it. So it has its own benefits as well. Let's see, as you're describing the different parts of it, the... Um the the way in which the game is kind of trying to force you into making decisions that aren't necessarily optimal but because that's how you advance yeah and trying to kind of how they all play on each other yeah it doesn't want you to make safe decisions it wants you to make exciting ones and the safe decisions are not always but generally the more boring of the options right yeah at least in my experience um, so I wanted this to be, again, this is that's the idea of what a lot of people ha- talk about when they re- uh, tell about stories about their sessions or um, a lot of media that's inspired by D&D ha- portrays those kind of things. But in, in my experience with actual 5th editions, uh, D&D is most of it at least. Um, it's a lot of do one or two fights and then rest, and then do one or two fights and then rest because there is no systemized negative consequence for resting. And in this there is. That is, whenever you rest, bad things advance. Right, and here you have it codified in the rules, whereas in like D&D, the only thing stopping them from resting is the GM saying, you can't because, you know, there's monsters nearby, or if you do, then the bad guy gets closer to his goal or something like those are, you know, they're exactly. just GM and imposed, but I would agree. Oftentimes when uh, the couple of D and D campaigns that I've played in too, it's like, okay, big battle and rest. And then, you know, do another thing, fight. Uh, can we rest? Uh, sure. You know, and then, and it makes sense from a character standpoint, if there's, if there is no consequence, then you would just always rather have all of your resources Exactly. Ready to go, you know, full hit points and all your spells. And I mean, why safety wise? Yeah. Why wouldn't you want that? But that Mm. is not necessarily where the drama comes from. Exactly. And so I wanted it to be dramatic and exciting without feeling, without the players feeling like their characters feel. I had that when I played Torchbearer, actually. Uh, It was very, very good. I don't want to play Torchbearer again, though I'd be fine to GM it because I felt like myself as a player felt like my character, which was just kind of run down from all of the terrible things that happened to my character uh, that were out of my control. Um, And that was not... Chasing Adventure is not that, but that was my experience with Torchbearer in a similar yet opposite way. So let me try to rephrase this a little bit, because I think... And it makes sense what you're doing. I think what you're going for is you want them to make exciting decisions, but you don't necessarily want them to feel punished for making risky, exciting decisions, right? Because you play it really grim, which I, I haven't played Torchbearer, but I assume that's kind of the case. Is It's just a grim world, and you're maybe forced to make bad decisions, but you're also, it sounds like, maybe punished somewhat or somehow yeah. for doing that. In Torchbearer, you don't, you sometimes make bad decisions, but mostly it's by adventuring itself, bad things just happen to you and there's nothing you can do a lot of the time. Um, and that, as I, for me, wasn't much fun. In Chasing Adventure, um, no, it's, it's, you're gonna take risks and even if bad things happen, they're good, you as a player will still be excited, even if your character is less than excited. 
um, it's going to be fun as the ever subjective fun. Another thing that I did with Chasing Adventure to jump into that really quickly um, was based off of my experience running a bunch of Dungeon World one-shots at conventions and online. Um, I found that while easier than things like Dungeons & Dragons for sure, character creation and the beginning of any uh, anything was, even with Dungeon World, a pretty slow start, I found. Um, there were still a lot of things to fill in and to choose from. There were still a lot of questions to answer um, and still a lot of work to do. So in Chasing Adventure, I simplified character creation uh, a lot and added extra things to help with the process of establishing how you how all the player characters know each other and what the relationship with the world is. Um, character creation you can do in five minutes at most, I would say. Um, you choose one background between three pre-provided ones. Um, you talk about, you ask three questions of the group. You answer up to three questions as well. Um, you make like two equipment choices, one to two move choices, and you're done. And, and I looked at the uh playbooks that you had and they reminded me a lot of the blades in the dark playbooks which also are pretty quick to fill out yeah blades in the dark are also very quick um i think i'd guess it's probably similar in terms of time um chasing adventure might be slightly slower per playbook but doesn't have to contend with a crew playbook as well um with blades, you choose your dots and choose your action rating. That's the big thing. And your vice is the other big thing. But you don't have to worry about equipment in Blades in the Dark, which is uh, makes perfect sense for a heist-type heist um, crime game. But in, in most fantasy games, equipment is more of a big deal. So there's still some choices in Chasing Adventure. But um, And how do you handle equipment in Chasing Adventure? Is it just like equipment list as you get things you write it down on your sheet or yep there's no carrying limits or or weight capacities or any ammo tracking or things like that um there is only i think a very um loose ammo tracking system for uh, an item called enchanted arrows but regular ammo and arrows aren't don't matter um there's no weight it's just you can carry what makes sense for you to carry kind of thing um that's about it. Um, so it doesn't get very detailed, but it's not about the detail like that. It's not about bookkeeping. Right. It sounds to me more like a like a TV show or a movie or something where you're going for the uh, fun and the, the risk and the excitement and less of the, uh, the drudgery of what that would actually entail if you were trying to go for straight realism. Exactly. You know that Frodo has a mithril coat on. You don't need to know exactly that it only weighs 10 pounds and that he, because it's still technically hard armor, he has to take it off before he goes to sleep at camp every night. Right. You just, it's, it's, it's just, just it, as it makes sense, use common sense, basically, as the GM. Yep. Um, and a similar thing has been done with money. Um, the coins and gold have and all valuables have actually been brought together into wealth. Um, wealth is just sort of a catch-all term for however much you have. This is similar to coin in Blades in the Dark, though I think one wealth is worth a bit more than one coin. It's uh, Or one barter, for example, from Apocalypse World. Um, this is fairly straightforward and similar to those, um, where one wealth, there's a bunch of examples for what it's worth, like um repair of most equipment healing from someone um a week stay at an ordinary cheap inn things like that um and examples of of what you can purchase with more so you don't have to carry about or keep track of anything more than this units of currency yeah and that makes sense because sometimes getting into the tracking of like i've got this many gold pieces and and it's like yeah i don't always need to know 
just a general level is is good enough in most cases. Like, can I buy it or not? <laughs> yep. So, yeah, Chasing Adventure keeps all of the same playbooks as Dungeon World. Um, however, in name at least, they've all been rebuilt from the ground up. Um, sometimes using uh, some moves and inspiration from at the time unfinished Worlds of Adventure. Um, that's kind of actually what the name Chasing Adventure came from in part. It was very inspired by that. Um, but then a lot of it is unique. Each playbook has its own unique mechanic. Um, there's a general mechanic, for example, called Favor that is sort of like Influence and Masks. It, it tracks um, who you favor and who favors you. The Cleric's unique mechanic is managing favor from their deity. Um, and they get a uh, basically get a bonus and get a few different things if their deity favors them, but they can lose it and then have to regain it. Oh, so that's cool. That's yeah, one one option for each playbook. They're they're all unique. Um the fighter is actually the one I'm most interested in playtesting myself next, if I ever get the chance to be a player character in my own game. Um they basically gain a currency called momentum during a fight that they can just spend to do extra things that most people can't. And when they get a momentum anytime they suffer or inflict a condition during a fight. So anytime basically damage is done either side, they'll gain it and they can spend it to do stuff, which is really nice. It sounds very fighter-y. Um, exactly. But just, just having that the extra edge in battle, I think that thematically it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and they're all kind of like that. Um, speaking of, we were speaking of Blades in the Dark, uh, the Ranger was difficult at first to create something like that because they're kind of just a ranged fighter, at least in D&D. &D. Um, but I, they have a system called um, prep, and they can use prep uh, in a fight to do certain things to a degree, but also they can use prep to flash back to things, to just say that they had prepared for things, similar in a simpler way to stress from Blades in the Dark. Yeah, that is a, a good way to differentiate them, because they would be, you know, having scouted an area and set traps or yeah. various things like that. So I think prep is a good resource mechanic for them. Yeah. So I am uh, happy with all of the playbooks. I think they all feel very different and exciting. Even if you've played a wizard in Dungeon World or other games before, um, they feel like their own thing. I'm going to have to take another... Uh, I just briefly glanced over them when you posted it on the server. Um, mm. I'm going to have to go and pick up the rule book and take a look at that as well. Uh, speaking of which, where can we find the rule book? Uh, the rule book is available on Drive Through RPG Chasing Adventure. There is a free version available with everything you need to play. There is also a full version available for $10. Um, and that includes the extra advanced play chapter, which details things like PvP. Um, it talks about the process for writing new moves, new playbooks. It includes an example of uh, an artifact magical item, um, which is sort of a magical item that has, is its own mini playbook. It has its own method of gaining experience, and it will grow alongside you. Um, there's also the chapter in the full version that is full of tables and generators. Um, personally, I am ha very happy with how these tables and generators work, where they provide, they remind me of stars without number. Um, we have ones for locations, out, uh, outlines for adventures, enemies, things like that. And But they, they give you a specific um, open-ended prompt um, all of the enemies, for example, are named, all, I think, 36 of them. Um, they're named, they have a few descriptions, and then, but they have little enough information to allow you to fill it in, and they also each come with a question that you can answer about them that will significantly change them as a, as a character, depending on each uh, time they're used. Well, that's kind of a neat idea to have... Um just those little bits that the the gm can insert as it makes sense or just to switch them up because sometimes uh players can get comfortable or learn the monsters and their exact behaviors 
pretty well and maybe you want to just spice it up a little bit so leaving leaving that actually in the game is a neat way to kind of force some of that variation that you would probably experience if any of these creatures were actually real yeah also it's it's once again inspired by apocalypse world which has specific uh, a pool of specific names that it keeps reusing like dremor for example um it's uh, inspired by that. So everyone's Dremor in Apocalypse World is different, but everyone has a character by that name. Um, similar in this, where with Chasing Adventure, there's this table, and it's intended to, and uh, in use has, made coming up with things on the fly very easy, and especially in a one-shot, for example. I'm in, when With one-shots I run, it's just... Create characters, talk about things for a short while, five, like, give me a f- maybe five minute break during which I roll on the tables, create the, th- I flesh it out a bit, done, let's go. And within an hour of, of um, starting the session and, and the one shot, we're playing the game. And with previous games and other games, it's been one and a half to two hours in regular Dungeon World of talking about things. Before, and then the other half of the game is playing. So it it really helps with jumping into things faster. I found that is that's really cool. I I'm gonna have to take a look at that and maybe try to run a one shot here on my server. And if you want to run a one shot on the server or try to find some other GMs to play test with, uh, definitely suggest just poking around and seeing if anybody's interested. Because a lot of I know a lot of people on the server want to get in on games. So <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to. Um... I'm also streaming games as well. Uh, has, I have a YouTube channel. Um, there's one one-shot of Chasing Adventure, but there will be more. Um, it is uh, twitch.tv slash primarkthemage um, is both YouTube and Twitch. It's usually once a week on Sundays that uh, new videos, new streams appear, and then videos will appear later that week. Um, and then on Twitter, I am uh, at Primark Spencer. The link is actually in at the first page of Chasing Adventure for those who have questions. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your uh, the knowledge that you've gained from your multiple different systems that you've played in and ran, and then also a little bit about Chasing Adventure. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff in there and things that I've been kind of wanting to see in a game so i'm gonna have to get my hands on one of the rule books and just dig in a little bit more um even if just for inspiration well thank you for having me and yeah no i uh sort of put a lot of my what i've learned from role-playing games combined with how chasing adventure is best run into what it says um obviously very little advice applies to every game but I th- I'm very happy with it. So thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.